Welcome to the Pink Cloud Podcast. In this weekly podcast, we offer a supportive space where women share their personal experiences of getting sober and navigating sobriety while being young. In each episode, we deliver an amazing combination of heart-to-hearts and informative interviews with sober women without judgment. This podcast is about of necessity for like-minded women trying to seek and maintain sobriety while achieving more in their lives. Whether it's in sobriety, relationships, career, spirituality, mental health, or health and wellness. Created with sobriety, recovery, and sisterhood in mind, the Pink Cloud Podcast unites the voices of phenomenal women as we share deep and inspiring conversations of hope for a bright future. Hello and welcome to the Pink Cloud Podcast. I'm your sober host, Lisa H. Today I have Carrie here. Carrie is a yoga instructor in active duty Navy and has been sober since 2016. She's very inspiring and she's here to share her experience, strength, and hope with us. So Carrie, go ahead and take it away. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Uh, I know we've been trying to do this for a while, so I'm so happy I get to finally connect with you for the greater good, right? I hope listeners, I hope you get something out of this podcast, maybe this story and anything to aid your recovery wherever you're at. So yeah, let's see. (laughs) I'm 30 years old and I got sober nine days after my 24th birthday. So I got sober pretty young. And when I got sober, people were like, I've spilled more than you've drank or, (laughs) you know, didn't know my story, but the truth of it is I really hit rock bottom a few times enough. So to keep me sober for six years. So yeah, as a little kid, my mom is sober. My mom's been sober for over 31 years. So longer than I've been alive. That's amazing. Yeah. Yes. And she's very active in her program of recovery. She still attends meetings weekly. She helps other alcoholics stay sober. And that was kind of the example I had growing up. And my father, you know, they were party partners and he pretty much very early on in their marriage was like, you need to get it together or I'm going to leave you. And so my mom got sober and my dad never did. And that's kind of where that took me still. He's not sober and my mom is so, you know, and my mom stayed with him until I was 13 and my little brother was eight and then they finally divorced. But yeah, there was always alcohol in the house. My mom lived, you know, with a fridge full of beer, always liquor. My dad was a daily drinker and still is a daily drinker. And that was definitely challenging for her, but I didn't realize how much. And I kind of resented her as a child for a divorce and for moving us out of there. But really, I thought it was normal for everyone's parents to scream at each other at the dinner table. (laughs) And I mean, really throw profanity around. (laughs) And it's not, it's not normal. And that's kind of what I grew up with and what I thought was normal. So all in all, I am grateful, you know, that my mom had the courage and strength and support from women in recovery. Yep. You finally file for divorce and get us the fuck out of there. Right. So yeah, I had a boyfriend all throughout high school and he was like a star collegiate athlete and I was in high school. (laughs) And (laughs) 
So he didn't really drink. I mean, he definitely didn't like smoke weed or anything like that. He kind of looked down on people that did drugs and drank heavily until he and his friends started drinking heavily. And then occasionally we would drink. And from pretty much the first drink that I picked up, I drank to excess. I remember not feeling drunk the first drink I ever had. I remember thinking like, I remember like wanting to pretend that I was drunk because I knew I wasn't. I'm like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> what is this supposed to feel like? I don't know. And then I don't really remember like the next time that I actually got drunk, but I do remember having like alcohol poisoning and, you know, throwing up on myself, like unconscious in the shower. Like that's where it took me the first few drink, like mm-hmm. drunks that I had. And then eventually that boyfriend, we were together two and a half years. He was verbally abusive and became physically abusive. And I became really grateful that I had that relationship first because I knew what signs to look for in relationships. I knew what red flags to look for. So if anybody tried to kind of like take away my freedom or control me in any way, I would blow the whistle because nobody is going to step on my toes anymore. I will not. He backed me into a corner. He isolated me from all my friends and it got really ugly, but eventually it was drinking that escalated like just the toxicity and generated more toxicity in our relationship. Like I remember, yeah, he was like holding me down because I had drank too much and he wanted me to stay like locked in a room. And I remember like fighting him to try to get loose so that I could get more booze. And in the process, his, his nose is bleeding. There's blood all over the room. Like it was like a crazy. And I was like, man, I was probably 16, 17 years old. So just really ugly, dark stuff involving alcohol from a really early age. Finally cut him loose. It was hard. (laughs) Finally cut him loose. They don't want to go away. (laughs) No, no, he did not want to go away. Yeah. So finally cut him loose. And then I was a senior in high school with about like five months left of senior year. Now that I don't have this controlling boyfriend anymore. And man, by the end of senior year, I legit had like liver pains. I drank so much. I binge drank every weekend, every chance that I could get. Like I got the nickname drunky because I almost fell into a fire. (laughs) Yeah. Like the town, like I was drunky, like that girl. I should have gotten a DUI about a month after my 18th birthday, a week before my high school graduation, my history teacher's husband pulled me over and he said, look, we're not going to ruin your life. So never do this again. And I was like, Got it. Not. I could feel like I'm going to ruin my own life. So just hang tight. Mm. Legit. So that was kind of my MO drinking and driving. And that is not sustainable at all. It's like really horrendous. You know, I really believe in my body that cars are like a two ton weapon. And I cannot believe that I was operating a vehicle like incoherently. It's insane. Yeah. And blackouts like, yeah just extremely reckless and really like, I just can't believe it. I can't believe I survived and I can't believe I didn't kill anybody else. And I only drank like that for five years. Right. So I just can't, can't even imagine if I continued, I know for a fact that if I were to go back to drinking now, I would kill myself or someone else hundred percent. But yeah, so I should have gotten my first DUI at 18, went to college in 2010. And then I decided in 2011, it was going to be the year that I tried every drug that I could ever. (laughs) I don't know where that thought came from. I was like, you're setting goals. 
You were like, I'm here in college to achieve. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A higher level of consciousness. I was like ready to like drink the tea, you know? Oh my God. So, and I was pretty successful at that. And I tried the majority of the drugs that I thought I would ever try until a few years later, I tried some other ones that I'm really, really not proud of. So yeah, college, I mean, I pledged a sorority. I did the party thing. You know, I used to feel like they made it mandatory for me to drink like, you know, Margarita Monday, Mm -hmm. whatever, Taco Tuesday, yeah, Wine Wednesday, Thirsty Thursday, we'd have mandatory bar nights. So we'd have to go to the bar and maybe we'd sell jello shots and stuff to raise money. Then Friday night, we always had a mixer. And how am I going to go to a mixer and not drink? Yeah. It's not happening. It is not happening. So I used to feel like seriously, like, oh my God, like my body is tired. I can't just drink like this anymore. (laughs) Meanwhile, like some of my other sisters were going and not drinking. They had finals, they had, you know, tests or clinicals or whatever, and they would attend these functions and not drink. And I thought, no, I couldn't do it. I'm like, no, I would just never do that in a million years. That's boring. And why would I do that? So I really, really drank. And a lot of my friends really, really drank. And I mean, smoked a lot of pot too, (laughs) a lot, (laughs) like a lot. So I did that. I did not pass all my classes. I changed my majors. Like I changed my major twice in the first year. So I also had a lot of incompletes, which turned to Fs if you don't complete your work. So Mm -hmm. I did have an extra semester to complete in order to graduate. And I did. And I moved away from the party campus for that last semester. And I was kind of like the older, like I was not an active duty sister anymore. I was like, I was an alumni and I did my own thing and I tried to focus. Right. And that was when I really started to try to adjust my drinking. Like, oh, I know what happens when I drink. I know the results. So if I just like smoke and maybe take half a pill or, you know, buy a six pack and stay in, it'll be enough and I'll be okay. Because I knew that I couldn't just drink a bottle because I would drink it all. I'll never forget. (laughs) There was this like mixer the girls were having and they wanted me to come, of course, because I was the cool alumni. No, no. (laughs) They wanted me to come. And I remember telling them like, I'm not drinking because I have X, Y, Z to do. And then I sent them that meme of the Austin Powers, like mini me. And it's Uh like, Tonight, I will have one drink, you know, in quotes and air yeah. quotes. And I sent that meme to all of them. Like tonight, I'm, I'm having one and leaving. And that night, I ended up falling headfirst down a flight of stairs. And I almost broke all my teeth. God. I landed on my chin on tile and I fractured my elbow. Well, I dislocated my elbow and fractured my radius. And oh I think the first part of that experience was this was like, yeah. Like November of my last semester of college, like I was in the home stretch and I yeah. had been keeping my drinking at bay. The worst part though, is that I fell, I was, I don't even remember what townhouse I was in at the time. And I fell down and was like laying there in excruciating pain. And people were just like taking pictures of me, like probably Snapchat or Twitter yeah, pointing and laughing. And I heard about that after the fact, obviously I was like laying there, like pretty much dead on the floor. Yeah. And Nobody helped me. And I eventually got up and made my way outside. And two of my sisters saw me and I was telling them I have to go to the hospital. And that night 
the doctor I remember like coming to briefly and he was like Carrie did you do cocaine tonight and I was like no and he said well your blood work says that you did oh my god oh you know and that was like my entire life that's just what it was like man like reckless like I treated myself with no respect I did not care about any consequences. I just really, I didn't care about myself enough to care. Like the goal was to just to get as messed up as I could. And maybe it wasn't the goal, right? Like this night, the goal was to have one drink. Yeah. I remember those nights. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, I'm not drinking tonight. I am not, I'm going to drink one and then go home. And it seems like for me, it was always the worst nights those nights always ended up the worst. The night that I ended up my last, like one of my last drunks, I ended up in detox. I was doing laundry at home on a Saturday night and I swore I was not going out. And then my phone rang and I left. And it just, it seems like for people like us, alcoholics or addicts, when we're trying to swear off or not do it, it's almost like it comes back like a wave. It's almost like we're trying to hold it back and we can't anymore. And it just comes worse than if we weren't trying to resist it. Yep. A hundred percent for me, same thing. It would be the nights that I didn't even want to go. I didn't even want to go out. And it's like, I have one and we're off to the races. Mm -hmm. Like all bets are off. I am getting wasted, like (laughs) with no regard, (laughs) like no regard. I've got blinders on. I'm running to the finish line. Like I will black out and pass out by the end of the night every time. Yeah. Like it was very rare that I didn't black out. And then especially towards the end, I became like, I was just constantly like a brown out. I might've had moment of clarity, you know, moments of clarity toward the end or, but yeah, not much. So I ended up graduating in a full arm cast. No, I had to have a scribe uh, take my finals for me in college. My last semester of college, I had a scribe because I couldn't write. Because oh I was my full. gosh. <laughs> Yeah. I like babysat for this really nice family. I had to like make up lies, you know? And I was, that's another thing. I was always living this double life, always living a double life. Nobody really knew. And all the while that I was in college, I would go home for winter break and summer break. And at the same time, my best friends from home and my boyfriend at the time were, man, I mean, we all like drank and smoked, but the boys started acting sketchy and I wanted to know what they were doing. You know, they'd say they were going to the gas station and it would take like 45 minutes. And I'm like, I know you guys are doing something else. What are you doing? And I find out. I want to know. Yes. I want to know. Like I want in. I want to know. Tell me. (laughs) Yeah. They were going, you know, to the man's house and they had been doing pills like Percocet and, and stuff like that. And I knew, you know, I was pretty well aware that an opiate addiction would turn into a heroin addiction. And I was well aware of these things. So I started to partake and get whatever we could. And when people say, what was your drug of choice? Quote unquote, I would say, I'm a yes. And can I have more? Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't discriminate. I would take whatever <laughs> with a few exceptions. Like I didn't do ketamine. Like I was like, no horse tranquilizer for me tonight. Yeah. But most things like I wouldn't say no. So the boys really got heavy into that. And then that guy that they were getting their stuff from got arrested And then they mostly switched to dope, to heroin. So all of us, luckily, out of that group made it out. 
okay. I knew better than to do opiates two days in a row because I was a good alcoholic and addict and I did not want to be physically dependent. Right. I like better. I never, you know, I luckily I never did any of that stuff to the point of physical dependence. So still, you know, smoking weed. I lost my first job after college because I failed the drug test. That was a big thing for me. My mom said, move home after school and pay your student loans and you'll be good. And so that's what I did. I moved home with mom and I was a bartender with a bachelor's degree. And (laughs) the lifestyle of serving and bartending is just really, it's great for alcoholics that want to drink and party all the time. Yeah. But but if you're a problem drinker, bartending is probably not the best job for you. (laughs) It was crazy, man. I used to have a 16 ounce like water cup behind the bar and my beer back was a good Irishman. I mean, my bar back, not beer back my bar back would fill it with straight tequila. So mm-hmm. instead of water, I would have silver tequila and a water glass <laughs> behind the bar. Yeah, man. Like, and then like people would tip me and slide me a bag of Coke in my receipt in their mm-hmm. receipt, folded up across the bar. And that was how I was living for a while. But obviously that was not sustainable for me for yeah. long. Eventually one thing happened after another. I mean, man, In those times of me, like really, I was making a killing. I was making a ton of cash and blowing a ton of cash, right? And I would spend time in the city and drink and party and we'd go bar to bar to bar after closing. And I would try to drive home after closing down the bars with all the bartenders from the strip. Yeah, It was a party and I fell asleep at the wheel twice during a six month period. And so that was about a year or two. That was 2015. Yeah. So a year after me falling down the stairs, I was able to keep my drinking at bay a little bit, but then the falling asleep at the wheel in August, 2015 shook me up. My airbag deployed and woke me up and it was scary. And my stepdad let us use his credit card to replace my airbags. So I was on the road again, like the next week you know, and yeah, I'm really grateful for that. But still then like, you know, two months later, I fell asleep at the wheel again, except this time I woke up to the EMTs unbuckling me because I had fallen asleep with lead foot on the brake in the middle of an intersection. And I could have gone through a storefront or gotten hit or killed. I have no idea what halted my car in drive in the middle of an intersection for me to be unconscious. Something did at the wheel, right? Some greater force did. I'll tell you, that's what happened. A hundred percent. And also a greater force. Like I got a $50 traffic obstruction ticket for that event. I was never arrested. Not yet. In my program, we say yet every not yet is you are eligible to. (laughs) Yep. You are eligible to. So, you know, I wasn't arrested for a DUI yet and I didn't. And to that, I was like pounding on the table, you know, like I need to be arrested. I need to be behind bars. I am a menace to society. I remember feeling that way too. I remember feeling that too. Someone block me up, please. Like, can I go take myself in somewhere for just being psychotic? Can I just, you know, I actually did try, but they're like, you're not crazy enough. Like you don't belong here. Go to out. We'll put you an outpatient, but I did. I'm like, okay, I either need to be arrested or someone needs to lock me up. And I tried, I went to, you know, the mental hospital and they're like, yeah, you're not that crazy. Take the weekend, Monday, start outpatient. That was my, you know, at least I got some kind of help where at least I was confined for, you know, certain hours of the day, but yeah, I had the same exact feeling, same thing. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, seriously. I was like, I'm not safe. Like I didn't know at the time that I would enter a program of recovery. I didn't know that what I probably needed was rehab. (laughs) I didn't know. I just was kind of, I was not self-aware. I had no self-knowledge. I didn't really understand this condition, like why I just couldn't like behave, like why I couldn't like keep it together. (laughs) Other people Um, are right. Like they just are living their life easily. And it's just so difficult for people in their disease, like us, that we know that it's not right. Something needs to be changed. Something has to be done. Like this can't be normal, right? Like this cannot be life. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Even my dad, right. Who is a daily drinker was fearful of my behavior. Like he was like, what is wrong with you? You know, like he was scared. (laughs) He was like, what the fuck is, what is wrong on? with you? Yeah, I, if, I get, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that when I was drinking, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Right. What is, what I, is I, wrong with you? I pissed my pants. I fell asleep on the bar. I fall asleep on the toilet. Like they find me in a split with my pants around my ankles <laughs> on, you know, oh my God. And they're like, what is wrong with you shaking me? What is wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. So that all, I mean, those events happening within six months. Now I really had, I had a better idea of my drinking. I was like, okay, (laughs) I need shackles and chains because every time I go out, something like this happens. So I knew, right. And from then, from like, you know, October, when that happened, that scary one where I came to in the hospital, by the way, I got some pamphlets on recovery programs in the hospital from the nurse. And I was like, well, you can go shove these up your ass, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Oh, and also my car got towed that night and the tow guy took my weed and I was pretty upset about that. I was like telling my mom. Always the tow guys always take the weed, right? I'm like, I could have been arrested or dead, but the tow guy took my pot. So like I was real heated, just so delusional. And yeah. A few months later, I was dating this awesome guy that I met at the bar. He had just gotten out of jail, maybe prison. I don't know. He was a drug dealer, which I found out about three weeks into talking with him, which was perfect. Anyway, I'm with this ding, guy. Ding, ding. Yeah. Right. Jackpot. I was still working at that place, but yeah. Anyway, he was a drug dealer and I was following him home from that bar one night. Police tried to pull him over. He didn't have his headlights on. And he took the police on a high-speed police chase on and off 95 and ended up going to jail that night. And because he didn't have my cell phone memorized, that was our breakup. Like, I never heard of him again, right? And now here I am, like, devastated. Oh, and his mugshot, like, circulated social media. And at the time, I was coaching a high school dance team. So, like, I was a prominent member of my community. Mm -hmm. a known member of my community. I'm from a small town. He had gone to the games with me, right? Like that he was around and now it's like my lives are, or crossing like colliding. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to get found out because now his double life is now exposed. Yeah. And people that had met him through me, like my friends on social media were like, Carrie WTF, like, Oh my God. Like, what is this? So that happened. And man, I was just devastated. I was just beside myself because how could this happen to me? And then about a week later, my mom was like, Oh, Carrie, by the way, we're moving out of state. So you can come with us to this obscure state that nobody would ever want to live in or find a place to live. And I'm like, 
oh my God, like rent and car insurance and everything was just like so high. My student loans are like wicked high. I paid a lot to drink a lot in college. I'm like, what am I going to do? And then that same week I had picked up some drugs that I really shouldn't have been doing. And I lost that bartending job where I was raking cash. And it was like these three huge life-changing events. Like, man, just sent me for a loop. I was drinking at this point. I went online and I'm like, which branch of the military has the least amount of boot camp? <laughs> okay, the Navy. Cool. Navy has the short amount of boot camp. I'm going to join the Navy. And I had thought about military before. I used to watch Army Wives on Lifetime. So I was yeah. like, okay, cool. Like military. I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> so before long, I was in contact with a Navy recruiter. I quit smoking pot and I was like, this is going to save me. Like, this is what I need. This is going to help me. And the recruiter kept calling me, but I couldn't pee clean yet. And I also had gauges in my ears. I had to let them close, you know, all these things. And around that same time that I was, you know, getting clean and working with my recruiter, my little brother got involved in like really, really bad stuff and became like unrecognizable. And it was really hard. We drank and partied together, but this was a whole nother level. He had mental health issues and he's severe bipolar and it was really scary And one morning I begged my mom to allow him to stay in the house that night. He was pretty much sleeping on the streets because my mom didn't feel safe around him because of his angry outbursts. Right. So at this one night I begged her to allow him to stay in the house and he did. And he woke up in the next morning and was screaming like a banshee, total like breakdown, grabbed like a piece of furniture and was going to throw it said he was going to kill himself. It was like really scary. And I grabbed the piece of furniture. I'm like, okay, you know, this is my little brother. Yes. He towers a foot and a half over me, but this is my little brother. I'm like, okay. And he like grabbed my arm and like maybe his nails cut my skin in like two places, but that was the extent of my injury. When my mom called the police again, I had had a lot of ambulance rides with my brother because of his mental illness just outbursts and mostly like angry outbursts from him. Anyway, so it wasn't the first time the cops had to visit our house and they took him in for his very first misdemeanor that night, family violence. Mm -hmm. And there was a restraining order on my behalf placed against him because he had broken my skin with his nails. And that was the thing that put me over. I was drunk 24 seven after that. I just could not handle the fact that that was happened in my house with my little brother. And I had signed my life away to uncle Sam. I was now a future sailor of the United States Navy and man, I stayed drunk all the time. And that lasted about a month. And then my dad was like, you need to go to a meeting just like my mom does. You know, they've been split for a lot of years, but he's like 10 years actually by then. And he said, you need to go to a meeting because I don't want to bury you. Wow. And I was like sobered by yeah. that. His voice was breaking. He doesn't often cry. And he was like in tears on the phone. I don't want to bury you, dude. You need to go to a meeting. Yep. And so I did. I took a picture of the sign on the door and I sent it to appease the family. And I drank for another 11 days after that. And my photos on my iPhone from that very first day I went to a meeting to the very last drink that I had are tell all of its own story. I wish I still had that phone, but (laughs) man, I like fell on my face outside of a strip club. I had two black eyes. I fell headfirst into a waterfall. I had no phone at the time. These photos were on my iCloud account. It was just 
horrendous. I had had this other little bartending gig. I went to work drunk. That was my last drunk. And since then, a lot has changed. A lot has happened. I woke up. Well, I drove home drunk. I drank until the lights came on my last drink. Mm -hmm. I drove home to a friend's house. A lot of that time I'd been avoiding my mother because she was a sober woman. And I couldn't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I always know people don't want to look me in the eye because they know I'm sober. I always know when someone's not coming around. I'm like, I don't care. Like, you can do what you want. I'm not the judge and the jury. Like, but it's a reflection. A sober person is a reflection and you know that they know. So the last thing that you want to, the last person you want to look in the eye is a sober person. And then your mom, mom knows everything. So of course. 100%. 100%. I was so ashamed and just like, I couldn't. So I'd been couch surfing a lot. I had like pretty much my whole wardrobe and makeup bag in my car, shoes, work clothes. I just didn't go home because if I was messed up at all, I wouldn't go home. She'd considered going to a program for loved ones of alcoholics at that time because of me, because Mm -hmm. of her worry and strain about me. Anyway, I drove to my friend's house and walked in at 4 a.m. He was getting ready for work. And I was just getting there and he looked me dead in the face and he was sick of my shit too. And he's like, you need to go to rehab today, today. I'm calling your mom. You're going somewhere today. You need help. This is like out of hand, like you're done. And I'm like, I know, I know. And I knew it. I knew that that last drink was my last drink when I got it out of my system. I romanticized it. I bid adieu to my lifetime partner, my lover, my my everything, right? I just knew it. I knew that I had to say goodbye. So I didn't end up going to rehab. I went to a meeting of a program that saved my life. And at that very first meeting, there was a friend at the table. So my mom took me and my mom and I sat across the table from a girl that I'd grown up with. And I'd seen her mugshot. She was prostituting for crack four months prior. She was prostituting for crack and her mugshot floated around. And now here's a changed woman sitting at this table across from me. And we cried all together. And it was like, it was God. Yeah. I felt God at that table. I waved my white flag. I read the steps on the wall and cried and cried because I had done it. I had really done it this time. And I was really ready. Yeah. My mom did continue to move out of state. So I was left really early in sobriety with like nobody. And the Mm -hmm. women in the rooms carried me. Like they saved me. They like, man, I had no job. I stopped bartending when I got sober. (laughs) Well, they didn't want me back anyway. (laughs) Like I didn't have any money to put in the baskets. I didn't have any cigarettes. And I was an avid smoker at the time. Like, please give me all of the slushies and coffee and cigarettes that you can. And I used to bring my empty pack of cigarettes to the meetings and the women there would put their cigarettes inside and say, don't worry, Carrie, it's going to be okay. Yeah. And the basket would come around and I would feel like such a POS because I couldn't contribute anything monetary. I couldn't contribute anything to anything. And they said, don't worry, your time will come. Carrie, and you're going to help another alcoholic and your time, you know, your time will come where you will have it and you'll be able to contribute. And that time did come. So I'm just really grateful for women in this program that, you know, carried me and taught me how to be an adult, taught me how to be a woman. I mean, 
Lisa, you're one of those women that continue how, you know, you continue to teach me how to be a woman in sobriety, how to set boundaries and keep them, how to respect myself, how to love myself. There's a portion of our book that we read that says, you know, our sex powers are God given and they are not to be taken lightly. And that was a big thing. I needed that. I had no self-respect. I let man, I used to, if I could get a place to crash and some booze from somebody, you can have me. Yeah. And I, I thought I owed them something and that's mm-hmm. how I operated. And that is just not, I don't have to live like that anymore. Yep. Yep. You know, But I had to earn all of these things back, this self-respect and my self-esteem and my self-care and my self-love and, and I'm still working on it. Right. Yeah. It's been a journey. I mean, since getting sober, like I said, I was living alone and I was a future sailor for the United States Navy, (laughs) which when I got sober, I was like, WTF did I do? Like, seriously? You're like, great. You're like, I'm stuck with the one night stand. (laughs) Legit. Except this one night stand, I raised my right arm for this great nation. I signed my life away to this one night stand for (laughs) for the least for how long did you, how long was your enlistment? Six years. Six years, six year, one night stand. Right. At least it wasn't 18. (laughs) Oh my God. But still like, okay, now uncle Sam owns me and I was actually starting to feel happy and I was starting to feel better. But then I realized that, you know, this is like going to be God's plan for me to be in the Navy, whatever. It is. It's divine. It was meant you and I wouldn't know each other if you weren't in the Navy. Right. You would never have lived overseas in beautiful Japan if it wasn't for the Navy. So there's a lot of, I know that everything in this world happens for a reason. And I think that everything is perfectly divine in the way that it's supposed to be, whether we like it or not, or whether we see it. And sometimes it's hard when we're in the shit, right? Like you're in it, you're like, oh my God, I got sober. I got my family moved away. And now I'm, what did I sign up for? Right. But it always works out the way, exactly the way it's supposed to be. You wouldn't have met other important people in your life either had it not been for your journey. So totally. Yes. I got a beautiful, beautiful, amazing wife out of the gig, which, you know, I always think about that. And in a minute, I'll tell you why it's even more profound now, but yeah, I moved to Chicago well, I went to boot camp in sobriety. That was crazy. Maybe that could be a story for another day. <laughs> I wanted to drink the hand sanitizer after a couple months. <laughs> Golly. Oh, and it's not the alcohol-free Listerine either, by the way. In case anyone was wondering, <laughs> in case anyone was wondering, they also pull people's wisdom teeth out, right? So these girls have like painkillers. I'm like, oh my God. They're probably just sitting there, right? Boot camp is wild if you wanted it to be like we could have gotten lit in there, but no, I, I stayed sober. That's I such stayed. an alcoholic way to think, right? Like who would think to a normal person, oh, I'm gonna take some Listerine, I'm gonna get these pills, like <laughs> so no, bizarre. But I, was like, I was like, you know, I was so removed from the solution and where I was plugged in that, man, I was finding little loopholes everywhere. I'm like, yeah, well, they've got this over here and this over here. And I was really white knuckling, like holding on to the edges of my pants, like just trying to make it. It was rough. But when I got out, I got connected with other alcoholics, other sober alcoholics. 
in the Navy and we had a ton of fun. We had a ton of fun. I helped a lot of people, a lot of other sailors get sober out in Chicago area. I was there for a year, had a few different sponsors. I did the male sponsor thing. That's definitely also another topic for another day. (laughs) And I got orders to Japan and my head spun. I was like, oh my God, that's halfway around the world. What am I going to do? I called my mom crying. And then about 24 hours later, like you just said, you know, I realized that like my country trusted me enough to be an ambassador and go represent the United States in another country and that I would be okay. You know, Mm -hmm. God's got me and I was meant to go. And then I was stationed on an aircraft carrier, which was so cool, super amazing. And I got to deploy a couple times and see amazing places. I also held a meeting of my fellowship on board the aircraft carrier. Sometimes people came and sometimes people didn't, but I was still able to carry the message and the solution to people that were suffering. Yep. Which was awesome. You know, like honestly, what a miracle you are. You know, I've just listened and I've heard your story in different bits and pieces, right? Because we've been friends for, you know, several years. I've heard it. I've heard you share in meetings and stuff, but listening to it in a linear way, right? And where you came from and where you're sharing, where you're at now, and just knowing where you're at now, like that is a miracle. It is seriously a miracle that you're sober today and that you're able to help other people you know, that you're on a carrier, an aircraft carrier, spreading the message and spreading hope to other people who are just like you and just like you and me, you know, other people who are, who are trying to find a solution who are struggling with alcohol addiction or other, you know, issues. And it's just amazing. And it has been so cool to see your growth too, to see how you've grown. And, you know, from when I first met you to now, and you're, you know, a wife and a homeowner and you're, you know, just growing up. And that's what we do in recovery. And when we're in the solution, we're not in the problem. When we're not at the bar trying to get a bag of Coke, you know, in our receipt, and we're trying to, you know, scam on the next thing. And where are we going to stay tonight? Who are going to stay with? What can we, who can we sleep with for this? What can we do? Like when we're not plotting and all of our motives are positive motives and like, let me be an example. Let me take time out of my day and sit for an hour and spread a positive message of what I've gone through. I mean, when we do that consistently, like life gets good. Look at your life now. You didn't have anywhere to live. Like you were like, okay, where am I going to go? Oh my gosh, here's an empty car, look, empty box cigarettes. Please fill it up. And now you own a home. Yeah. You have a beautiful car, brand new car yeah. that you've worked for. And you have a wife, you have a life, you have a career, like you are a role model it's you're a miracle. Like you are such a freaking miracles. Like, honestly. Oh my gosh. I know. And it blows my mind every day, you know, and like, not that material things, you know, are it, it doesn't mean anything really, but it's security. It's security security today. Yeah. I have a car that works. Yes. That goes from point A to point B reliable on the highway and it doesn't overheat Mm -hmm. today. Yeah. Not only I'm not sleeping in the car, I bought a house last year and that is just, it is only because of my sobriety. And I know for a fact that if I were to pick up a drink, all of this would disappear in the blink of an eye gone. My, yeah, I've definitely come a long way and I've come a long way, like in my thinking too. Every day that I stay sober, I notice something new about myself and somewhere to grow. 
you know, just recently I started therapy. Yeah. I was 29 when I began, you know, finally I felt as a 29 year old woman that I was ready to kind of face some of the other stuff. I've done a lot of work on the steps, but I was ready for outside help and it has helped me even more. And I'm just like on this crazy healing journey, like just always unlocking that next level. And the people that I met in this program, in this, you know, journey of recovery are just, some of them are just, you know, like soul sisters, like you, you know, like people just sent by God to save me literally. Yeah. (laughs) And we've hit meetings in Hong Kong, (laughs) you know, um, Australia, Australia, Brisbane, Guam, Guam, yep, yep, yep. California. And just everywhere I go, you know, there's people, there's sober alcoholics there to receive me as their sister. Yeah. Well, I love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And that's a wrap guys. Thanks so much for tuning in and don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you're listening from. And we will see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the pink cloud podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you in the next episode.